You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Good morning, Reality San Francisco. I'm so privileged and blessed to be with you this morning. Um, we are a family. Amen? The church is a spiritual family, and like our normal families, we go through seasons. We go through seasons of grieving, seasons of blessings, the ups and downs, the thick and thin. And as you as a community have been going through Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, you've been learning about what it means to go through a season of correction as a church. And if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to continue in that and talk a little bit more about what it means when we have to draw lines in the life of the community and, and why it matters, what that means, what it doesn't mean, so that we might understand what Jesus wants for his church. The text I've been given this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a few simple verses, verses 9 through 11. We'll read the text and I'll lead us in a prayer once more. Paul the Apostle, writing his letter to the church in Corinth almost 2,000 years ago, says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to each one of us as individuals, and as a family, about what it means to be a family, what it means to be a kingdom community that Jesus creates by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray for this church. I pray that your spirit would remind them who they are in Christ and who they are as a community and what their responsibility is. And as we discuss these things, I I also ask for those here this morning who do not know about the way of Christ, I pray that they would understand more clearly who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, that they too might believe, and that all of us, God, I pray this from the bottom of my heart, that we would know freedom, that we would know freedom in Jesus' name. And the whole church said, amen. Imagine if the only way our cities would ever find out about Jesus was through the local church. Imagine there were no Christian best-selling authors, no websites for those seeking, no podcasts, no films, no magazines, no other publication at all whatsoever available for the public to consume. That would raise the stakes 
on the importance of the local church. And I believe that this is what the Apostle Paul is doing in his letter to the Corinthian church and also to us. He is raising the stakes in a world where they didn't have the staggering amount of of resources available like we do today. He's reminding them of the importance of the words and deeds of the local church. Not that any of those other things are bad in any way. They are blessings, but friends, they can never replace the role of the local church in the city. The church is a radical counterculture, a witness to the inbreaking kingdom of God in Jesus, telling the world a better story. Telling the world the story of God's great redemption plan, his plan of freedom, his plan of deliverance, his plan of power. Therefore, it matters what we believe. And it matters how we behave. It matters what I believe. It matters how I behave. And it matters what you believe. And it matters how you behave. He is not only raising the stakes on the role of the church in general, but your role as men and women within the community. And I think that is most certainly one of the lessons that the Holy Spirit wants all of us to learn, even as we are dealing with a very specific situation in this letter. We are not to miss the broader application that that this is the church's responsibility. So as we're walking through the instructions of the apostle, do not think that, oh, this only belongs to them or to the pastors or to the leaders or to my community group leaders or those people. This is an us it's, it's not a you and them situation, it's an us situation because we are a family. And everyone matters in a family, amen? Charles Spurgeon, one of the great uh, preachers of yesteryear in London, once put it like this, to emphasize your responsibility as an individual. He said, if I am a soldier set to guard the army at a certain point. I know that every post in the whole line of soldiers is important, but I am not to dream that mine is not so. If so, I may be inclined to sleep, and the foe may surprise the camp at the point which I ought to have guarded. I am to feel as if the whole safety of the entire camp depended upon me. At least I ought to be as zealous and as watchful as if it were so. You see, the links of that chain, each one of them has a certain strain upon it. Suppose that one of them should say, I can rust through, it doesn't matter, for all the other links are strong. No, my friend, the chain depends on each link, and so for the completeness of church work and for the perfect edification of the body of Christ, a great weight of responsibility lies upon you. He's reminding us, of our corporate identity and our corporate responsibility. Jesus said that his church was to be a city on a hill that gives light to all, that people would actually come within its borders, that they would come within its proverbial walls and see a different economy, the economy of grace, that they would see a different power, the power of the Holy Spirit, that they would see the greatest definition of love, the love of Christ 
So what is it that the men and women of this city would experience when they come into this city on a hill? What would their experience be? If there is not evidence of transformation, if, if, if we use our money and our resources, even our bodies, in the exact same way as the rest of our city, there should be great concern. There should be great concern. And that is why it is such a big deal when someone, one of us, claims to be a kingdom citizen and we go against the script of the kingdom. We go against the norms of the kingdom community. And this is what Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And it's what every church in every city must learn to deal with as well. As you've learned from Pastor Dave, the Corinthian church was interpreting freedom in a way that was actually at odds with the way of Jesus. And so Paul the apostle has to draw some lines. And so do we, because first of all, the church is a community of discernment. The church is to be a community of discernment. Now every community makes distinctions. Every community is to a certain extent exclusive. They have borders that declare their identity to the world around it. If you belong to PETA, you can't wear fur coats. You just can't. You're like, yeah, PETA, I got my fur coat. Like, no, you are, you won't last long. Not that I've tried, but you won't last long. It crosses the line of their identity and their purpose they believe themselves to have in the world. So every community draws lines. The question is, are we drawing the right ones? Are we drawing the right ones? Discernment is the ability to make the right distinctions. Now, Jesus famously said, and this was referred to last week, judge not, but he was certainly not saying, hey guys, don't you dare try to make distinctions between right and wrong. That is not what Jesus is saying. Of course not. Jesus actually tells us to do these very things. We're just not to do them with an excessively critical and arrogant attitude. So Paul is taking his cue for kingdom ethics from the king himself And so should we. And in these few short verses, Paul is listing for us behavior that goes against kingdom norms. A life abandoned to greed. A reviler. Sexually immoral. And several other examples of what kind of behavior constitutes crossing the line. Lines are drawn so that the kingdom life is clear. To call something wrong that Scripture says is wrong is not actually being judgmental. It's simply not. The way in which you might do it could be judgmental, but simply to acknowledge something to be wrong because Scripture says it is wrong is not judgmental. Uh, Let me give you an example. Is your dentist judgmental? I mean, they might be. I mean, let's be honest, but if you go to your dentist and he or she is is examining your your mouth and they say, hey, you've got cavities and we need to deal with it, you're like, oh, I feel so judged right now. Like, (laughs) like, why are you going to hate me? So I'm like, no, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not hating. You have a cavity. Now, you could have a, you could have a judgmental dentist, you know, anyone see Little Shop of Horrors? Remember that Broadway play and movie? Steve Martin's like this masochist dentist. He's like, ah, and he, you know. 
gets excited about pain. Okay, some, some people might be in that particular train of thought. That, that's clearly not what is being talked about in Scripture. It's a concern for what Scripture says. In other words, we don't apologize for the teachings of Scripture. We may need to apologize for how we've handled them. We may need to apologize for how we've handled them. Sin is what goes against Christ in attitude and in action and therefore misrepresents his church to the city around itself. Because the church tells the story of redemption, tells the story of Jesus Christ, and when we're acting in a way that goes against that, there is a contradiction, and those around us can see it. Fiji Water, the bottled water company, got in a lot of trouble several years ago because it wanted to be the, the, the first carbon-negative water company, and so it touted itself as being um, Fiji Green. And yet nothing in their actual practice could be farther from the truth, and so there was a, a class-action lawsuit against them because the alarm bells went off from the observers, and they said, hey, they are not living according to the story that they're telling. Even if this morning you're... you're you're here and, and you might not be a follower of, of Christ. You should be concerned if men and women in this community are, are not living according to the story they tell. And those of you within this community should have the utmost concern. Because we, through our, our ethics, through the way in which we conduct ourselves, the way that we treat one another, is telling a different story about sex, about money, and about power. So though all of us are prone, if we're all honest, and we need to be, though we are all prone to hypocrisy and judgmentalism, it does not mean that we are free from the responsibility to examine ourselves and lovingly help each other. We need humble discernment. Jesus said, first take the massive plank out of your own eye so that you might see clearly to help your brother or sister with the speck that is in their eye. So before we get to Paul's specific instruction about what to do with this particular person in question, we need to make sure that we are using proper discernment with a proper attitude. So are we in this situation, it is very clear, but when we think about application to our community, when I think about this application in relation to my city, we need to first of all ask the question, are we talking about someone who is actually a professing Christ follower? When we understand this instruction about Paul saying, hey, don't associate with someone or they need to be outside of the community, we need to stop for a moment and ask ourselves the question, are we talking about someone who is actually a professing Christ follower? See, some of us have the tendency to be a little overeager when it comes to dealing with issues in the church. Some of you might be a little too excited, like, sin, what? Oh, I smell it. Let's deal with it now. And you're like, steady, just settle down. We need to stop and ask the question, are we talking about someone who is actually a professing Christian. And this is something that Paul makes very clear in this passage. Someone named a brother. Someone recognized as a 
member of the local church, someone who's professed faith in Jesus Christ, baptized, no doubt, and widely accepted and acknowledged as a member in the local church community. So we need to stop and say, are we actually talking about a professing Christ follower? And then secondly, are we actually talking about a sin issue? Are we actually dealing with something that Scripture calls sin? And friends, I cannot stress how important this is. Because sometimes we get upset in the local church community about things that are actually not sin. It's because some of us are a little OCD, and we get irritated, and we're like, I don't like that. Like, it's a, People say, well, is it a sin? Like, well, I mean, in my mind, yeah. <laughs> like, they irritate me. I mean, isn't that enough? Because there are some areas that are, you know, that might be irritating to you, but are certainly not sins, and so that would be a different conversation, and maybe one you need to have with yourself before God, but other areas are conscience issues, but are we talking about a sin issue when it comes to what is commonly referred to as church discipline? Now, in this particular case, it was a grievous sin, one that would not even be tolerated by outsiders, as you discussed last week. It was known among the whole church. So not every situation is going to be like this one. But when it is open, when it is persistent, a line must be drawn. Because it shows the difference between the way of darkness, the way of light, the way of death, and the way of life. If so... If we answer yes to those two questions, then it must be dealt with because secondly, the church is a community of discipline. The church is a community of discipline. And I want to speak very clearly here because for some of you who have had previous church experience, many of you hadn't. For many of you, this is your first church experience. But some of you perhaps have come from a background where sin was dealt with, but it was dealt with in a way that was actually not helpful but harmful. And it could be that some of you were actually the ones wounded in the process. And I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to bring great healing in your life and in all those that you influence as God addresses this, not in a hurtful way, but in a helpful way, in a Holy Spirit way, for that is the way in which we are to deal with it. The church is a community of discipline. The term discipline simply means training people to follow a code of behavior and using correction when they don't. And Paul makes very clear I'm not talking about someone who is outside of the church. He says that, that's not what we're talking about. This is not for the world. We have no right to expect Christian behavior from someone who does not claim to be a Christian. We have no right to expect Christian behavior who does not consider themselves to be a part of the church. But we do from those inside. We do. From those inside. When Paul says not to associate with the sexually immoral, he is expressing his deep concern about the lines being blurred when it comes to the church's identity. 
If you're not a Christian, we love you. We want you to learn about Jesus. We want to present Jesus to you in the best way that we possibly can. We are thrilled that you are here. For those in the church who knowingly and willingly are going against the way of Christ, it must be addressed. And Paul is concerned here. And we should be concerned. He's concerned that there be no confusion about what it looks like to follow Jesus, about what it looks like to be pleasing to God, about what it looks like to be salt and light in the world. For when the church excuses what God condemns, it sends a grievous message to the world. We can't be indifferent. We can't be indifferent. The people living under the name of Christian, named a brother, named a sister, because we are in a family, someone who is named a Christian but is in opposition to Christian ethics become permission givers. You say, hey, I'm following Jesus, but I'm doing X, Y, and Z. I'm abusing alcohol. I'm abusing people. You become a permission giver. Because the truth is, many of us rarely base the way that we live on just, just, just a list, like a written out list or, or a code. We often take our cues from a, a cultural script. Oh, well, what should I do at this stage of my life? Oh, well, what are, what, what are they doing? Or what things are influencing me in my life. We look at others and we take our cue from how they are living. So for someone named a Christian who is going against the way of Christ, what happens is you become a permission giver and other people look at your life and they take their cues. Oh, I can follow Jesus and I can do this as well. Paul is so concerned about the influence taking place in the church. It must be addressed. And so Paul says what he says here in 1 Corinthians 5. Now, some of you are coming into the middle of the story. And that is often the case when it comes to dealing with a person in the church. You, you, you don't know where they've come from. And you're coming in to the middle of the story. So it is necessary for us to stop and to slow down. When Paul says here, don't eat with them. Not even to eat with such a one. It's a very powerful statement. We need to pause and we need to back up. We need to back up. This process begins with a personal plea for repentance. So Paul gets really practical. What is the protocol? How do we deal with these issues when they're full-blown like it was in Corinth? How do we deal with it in the life of the church? You heard about the situation last week that it was this open, grievous sin, that sin affects the church, that my sin affects the church, that your sin affects the church. So how do we go about dealing with it? And, and we need to pause, and we need to back up. Jesus himself gives us marvelous instruction for how, practically speaking, we are to go about dealing with sin in the church. And he, Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, reading this from the New Living Translation, Jesus says, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. 
If the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. If he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. We need to slow down when it comes to this process. And and I believe that a few of our extremes uh, need to be addressed. Some of us lean towards the extreme of being overbearing. Right? Some of you might be a little overbearing. Like when you want to deal with the situation, you are like a Mack truck. And believe me, I know because I'm one of those people. I'm like, well, we got to deal with it right now. Calling the person immediately. My wife's like, wait, no, like maybe pray for like a second. I'm like, no, I'm on it. I got it. Some of you are overbearing. Some of you have been dealt with by overbearing people and that may be what has profoundly shaped your perception of the church and it may be the very reason you have so many issues with the church. Because of these overbearing Christians like, hey, you, oh, do we really have to yell? Like, I don't know if Jesus yelled in Matthew 18. I mean, (laughs) I don't see an exclamation mark. So that's one extreme, and and some of us tend to to lean towards that. If you're overbearing, ask the Holy Spirit today to mellow you out. And do a word study on the word gentle. It's all over the place. Galatians 6, if someone else is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual in humility and with gentleness. Oh, just live in that word for like a second gentleness help the other person and be careful lest you fall into the same temptation that is instruction for you but but on the other hand some of us may lean towards the side of avoidance we just don't want to deal with it we don't want to deal with it at all and so we need to be brought back to this this middle position this this radical middle position where we don't pretend that it's not happening but we address it in patient and prayerful humility. And I believe Jesus gives us such practical ways to address this. And I believe that if by the power of the Holy Spirit we follow this outline that Jesus gives us, we'd see a lot less bad examples of church discipline within the church. And so we need to take this responsibility upon ourselves. It begins with a personal, and let me add the word private, plea for repentance. So the initial stage is in humility, approaching the one who is in error. Notice, according to Jesus, the initiative rests on the person who is first aware of the sin. Practically, here's what it means. It means you don't immediately email your pastors. Dear pastor, I saw one of the local church members in sin, caps lock, just all bold. I get those emails all the time, just caps lock all over the place. (laughs) Oftentimes when we see an issue, when we see a problem, we tell the pastor or you start, you know, Instagramming the member of the church in the very act. You're like, oh no. (laughs) 
people. Or you make some kind of like side social commentary. Oh, if the church would just get it together. Okay, don't, just don't do it. Don't do it. But in humility, in a private, personal plea, call for repentance. And if they receive it, you've won your brother or sister. Notice the goal. You've won. Like, yes, they all, yes. Following Christ, beautiful. But if not, it must go from the private to the plural. It must be taken to the next level. Now, practically, here's a word of caution. When it does come to this point, and it may be, and that's certainly the case with what's happening here in 1 Corinthians 5, when it does come to the point where you've approached them in humility and in a private way and you plead for repentance, but they're like, no way, I'm, I'm doing my thing. I'm going to stay in the church and I'm going to do my thing. Here's what you do. You don't just say, let me call you next week and let's meet for coffee and have them show up and all of a sudden you're there with like eight people. You're like, glad you came. And they're like, what? What, what is this? Okay, this isn't like an intervention, okay? So many wounds have happened in the church because church discipline is done like an ambush. Like a surprise party, but it's, it's like not a party. Like, <laughs> I mean, if you're on the receiving end of that, that's just horrible. You walk in, oh, hey, glad to, oh my goodness, what are you doing here? Okay, stay, lock the door. <laughs> okay, don't do it. Sit down with that person and say, you need to understand what I'm saying. And just so there's objectivity and just so you know that it's not just my little, you know, hobby horse that I'm riding here, we're going to bring in other people, people that you know, and and they're going to come in and we're going to talk about this together. So let's all meet next week. We've got to be careful in how we do it, but we must do it nonetheless. And we must use wisdom because it protects the person in question. It protects the church community. It protects you. It protects others so that it's not just gossip or he said, she said. It's very clear what the issue is. Taking sin issues to the community level as Paul is doing here in Corinth is all about establishing guilt. If someone says, no, I'm not guilty, I'm gonna continue doing my thing and I don't care what you have to say about it, you must take it to that level so that guilt is established, making it clear that this is indeed a sin issue, that it does indeed affect the church and that it must indeed be repented of. Church, this is your responsibility. The way that Paul's speaking here, he's saying it's your responsibility. It's the responsibility of the church to do this together. And as you do, it may turn out that some simply choose to leave the church community on their own, which is a frightening thing. Others, through that process, may discover perhaps I'm not a Christ follower. And maybe their whole position is brought into question. Maybe I never really started following Jesus. And you address it in that way. And from that point on, you say, okay, well, if, if you're stating, okay, I'm, I'm an unbeliever, now we're going to treat you like that and show you the way of Jesus. Like, let's talk about Jesus and what it means to follow him. But this situation in 1 Corinthians 5 is that of a person who insists on all the blessings and all the privileges of being in the church community while continuing in open, open grievous sin. And that may be you. It may be you. 
saying, I know, I, I want to be in. I want all the privileges. I want all the access. I, 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 I want to be in here, and I want to be able to do what I want to do. And it is if, and only if, that person insists on claiming Christ and yet insists on living in a destructive way that out of concern for the glory of God, the health of the community, and for the individual in error, they are to be excluded from the church. And the way in which that is communicated is so important. You are stating in that moment, if it gets to that level, and it rarely does, but if it does, you are saying, we are responding to your decision. And I hope that we've demonstrated patience in this process and shown you from Scripture that this isn't just my idea. I'm not just being OCD or controlling. This is what Jesus wants for his church, and we are responding to your decision. At this point, Paul says, here in this text, to not associate, he says it twice, and not even to eat with such a person. It's a pretty strong word of instruction. What does it mean? Most scholars, most commentators believe that he is referring at the very least, it could be more, but at the very least that Paul is referring to the Lord's Supper. That Paul is referring to the communion table. And it it's most certainly means at least this because the Lord's table, the communion, is a central symbol of Christian identity. And so a barring of this to a person would communicate so strongly to the one insistent on error, how serious and disastrous their, their decision is to continue in sin. You cannot continue in open and rebellious and grievous sin while enjoying the comfort of the church. And this is not the only place that Paul says it. In Titus chapter 3, verse 10, I believe it is, Paul says, reject a divisive man after the second and third admonition. If someone's just trying to stir up discord and trying to bring harm to the church and they're approached patiently and gently and continually and they still won't receive it, you have to deal with them in the same way. So he's most certainly speaking of the Lord's table for it is the, a, a central symbol of Christian identity. But Paul also may be speaking of more than the Lord's table. He may be speaking of your table. He may be speaking of a shared meal. Now, some clarification is needed on this point because in the first century culture, eating together was of paramount importance. It symbolized your approval like you are in if you are at my table. Of course, in our culture, a meal doesn't mean the same thing. In fact, we may even be getting a meal with someone for the very purpose of addressing a sin issue. So practically, here is what I believe the Apostle Paul is getting all of us to ask. Here's what I believe he is getting us to ask. Does my presence mean my approval? Does my presence mean my approval? If so, 
then what it does is it blurs the identity of God's holy people. It makes vague what God has made clear. So what we need to ask ourselves in a situation is there can be times where we're associating in a way that does not communicate approval. In fact, it's clearly understood among you and the other person and the others around you that this meeting or this gathering or this event in no way communicates, hey, it's all good. Everything's all good. doesn't even matter. Bro. But you need to stop and ask, does my presence mean my approval? Because if so, you're excusing what God has not excused. And you're saying, hey, we kind of had to deal with this thing, but it doesn't really matter. And church, the Holy Spirit says it matters. The Holy Spirit says it matters. The lesson is there's to be no confusion about where people stand. And this is because, thirdly, the church is a community of deliverance. The church is a community of deliverance. My eight-year-old daughter just brought home a book from her school library this last week called Go Free or Die. And it is the story of Harriet Tubman during the time of slavery about the Underground Railroad in which history tells us she was part of the freedom for dozens and dozens and dozens of slaves coming out of, of bondage from their owners up into the north. And it is reported that on one occasion, as a freed group was heading north to secure their freedom, a man began to become a coward. And he wanted to return to the plantation in resubmission to his captors. And Tubman responded by pointing her rifle at the man. How's that? <laughs> pointing her rifle at the man and saying, you go free or die. She told him no to prevent the man from losing his one shot at freedom and to protect the larger mission of liberation. For choosing to return to slavery would mean his death and would cause the death of others. It was her identity as a freed woman that motivated her mission to bring herself and others freedom even at great cost. Now we're not talking about rifles but we are talking about true freedom. Freedom from bondage. Freedom from slavery. The church is to live as an alternate society in a world of idolatry, a community of freedom within a world of bondage. And Paul is addressing this issue about dealing with sin in the church in the context of the Passover meal, the Jewish meal that represented their deliverance, the people of Israel, their deliverance out from under bondage, out from under slavery into freedom. The meal that was radically 
reinterpreted by Jesus in whom is brought about true freedom from sin, true freedom from death, true freedom from decay into the freedom of the spirit, into the freedom of the life of the kingdom of God. Friends, we can't go back. We cannot go back into bondage. We cannot resubmit ourselves to our previous captors. We are not to go back. Going back only brings ourselves into jeopardy and puts others in jeopardy and danger. That's why Paul says to them, and he says to us this morning, in 1 Corinthians 15, later on in his letter, he says to the church, in verse 34, come back to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I want us to notice the whole heart and the goal and the aim of dealing with all this because it's serious and it must be dealt with and it's something that you must do. It's a responsibility you must take upon yourself to flesh out and to live out. But the goal, the aim is freedom. The aim is deliverance. The goal of all church discipline is restoration. I think one of the reasons the church has gone so wrong, and I've gone wrong, and perhaps you have gone wrong, when dealing with sin issues in the church is because we got the goal wrong. The goal is restoration. The goal is to see that person walking in the freedom and newness of Jesus Christ. For is that not the heart of Jesus, church? That's what God wants for his people. That means that when it is communicated, when it does reach a 1 Corinthians 5 level, it must be clearly communicated at that moment when the person has to be excluded, when the person is asked to leave. Here's what also has to be communicated. The door is open. The moment you repent is the moment you are embraced. We should never communicate a message that says, once you repent and then go through 15 layers of good deeds, then we might give you the right hand of fellowship. That's not what it says. The moment, the moment that you turn to Christ You are embraced by his community. You are embraced by the church family. For underneath every disciplined decision is a desire for deliverance. That's why at the end of 1 Corinthians, at the very end when he concludes his letter, you guys will get there in like three years, in chapter 16, (laughs) in chapter 16, listen, he says after giving all these instructions about how to deal with sin and how to deal with these things, at the very end he says, let everything that you do be done in love. Let everything you do be done in love. Paul is not saying that the church community will not sin. He's not saying that you will not sin. He's not saying that we won't struggle with sin. But that when we do, we have a choice. We have a choice to side with Christ against our sin Or we have a choice to side with our sin against Christ. What decision will you make? What decision will we make today? 
We are the true free people in Jesus Christ. And we are helping each other to pursue freedom in Christ and helping each other to awake when we aren't. Notice with this whole discipline issue, it is necessary only because we are a people of freedom. We are a community of deliverance. In other words, God's no is always for a greater yes. And so the church's no to anything is always for the greater yes of freedom in the spirit. The greater yes of freedom in Christ. The greater yes for deliverance. So this is Paul's wake-up call to the church. His wake-up call to me. His wake-up call to you to freedom. We're helping each other become wide awake, resurrection people, living as kingdom citizens, proclaiming through the way that we treat one another and the way that we live. What is most important, what is most important, God's no is always for a greater yes. We've got to keep dealing with sin in our lives and dealing with sin in the church in perspective of the greater yes. That's why C.S. Lewis said famously, I think we all sin needless, by needlessly disobeying the apostolic injunction to rejoice. It's because we forget the greater yes that we settle for sin, that we settle for what God does not want, what grieves his heart for you and for the church. Men and women, you are the liberated who are being liberated. You are the free who are becoming free. You are the delivered who are being delivered because Jesus Christ faced the ultimate exclusion that all of our sin deserves so that we might enjoy the ultimate acceptance that his righteousness deserves. That is the gospel. Christ has paid for our sin. Christ has died. He was excluded on the cross so that we could be included and embraced by the very arms of our Heavenly Father. We're not to go back into bondage. We are in freedom, heading towards freedom. And when we celebrate communion, we are celebrating a freedom meal. We're celebrating a freedom meal. For those of you who have perhaps been treated wrongly by the church when it comes to sin, the Holy Spirit wants to bring great healing to you today. As he causes you to reflect on Christ and his great love for you and that even though there were men and women in your past that may have not dealt with you in the right way, you'll never have a good reason to stop following Jesus. And he says, come to me. And allow for that deep healing to take place by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you might be the men and women that can model that in a loving and gracious way to other people. Church, the Spirit is saying to you, you've got to take this responsibility upon yourselves and learn to say no, but always for the greater yes. And for those of you who are in error, who are insistent on continuing in your sin. Jesus says today, turn. 
He says, turn and repent. Turn and experience the embrace of the Father purchased for you through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you are here and you do not yet know Jesus, know that though your sin deserves penalty and death and eternal judgment, Christ took that judgment upon himself to bring you in. Believe today and learn what true freedom is that we might together live as the free people of God. Amen? Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak so clearly to your church in every way. Lord, for those in bondage, would you bring deliverance? For those with wounds, that you would bring healing? For those who do not know that now they would know that they would believe and I pray that your church would be a purified church. I pray that we would have the courage to deal with what you want us to deal with but the humility to do it in the way you want us to do it. Holy Spirit, would you bring life? Holy Spirit, would you bring liberation? right now. In Jesus' name, amen.